Hello, Hoop Collective listeners. We have a special little project here that I wanted to tell you about. I'm sitting here with Bomani Jones, who I think interviewed me on the radio for the first time in 2007. Yeah, it's way back. When you were on in Raleigh, North Carolina. Yes, sir. And um, so it's been a long time. And you put together a special uh, podcast uh, special, I guess a special podcast special, how about that, <laughs> um, that I took part in. Why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about about it and, and this what they, what they have a chance to hear now that the uh, finals are over. Yeah, no, the feature is called Baseline, and what we're going to do is put different topics in and kind of go more in-depth on them. And one we're doing one on is the Supermax contract in the NBA and the effect that's had on the league, if it has accomplished the goals that they wish to accomplish in the CBA with it. Now, you and I started things off. We talked to Bill Duffy, agent to Luka Doncic, and others. We talked to Michelle Roberts of the NBA Players Association, and we finished up with front office insider Bobby Marks. Tried to get into this because it's a term that's going to get thrown around a lot as free agents goes around and I think a lot of people even if they know about it don't fully understand it necessarily my god am I intimidated by the quality of his voice <laughs> you're it's very me. difficult no, man, you're very do, difficult you do well with this though like I always feel like one thing I like about listening to you is I always feel like wow you're like talking with us you know what I mean well thank you it's because I'm not that smart <laughs> um this is a the supermax is super duper important it's um affecting the way the league is going and Andrew Hahn and I thought that our listeners at the Hoop Collective would be very interested in this type of discussion. I know I am interested in it. <laughs> Sometimes I make it a little bit too into the weeds, but I think you guys are here for this. And Bomani has put together something pretty cool here. And I don't know. We're, we're going to put it in the feed. You can listen to it here and uh, and hope you enjoy it. And maybe in the future there will be more of these. Yeah, we were fortunate to get like the perspectives that we got on it from like all of these different angles. And I was surprised some of them said yes even to give us the time, you know, a little bit to do it. But yeah, it, Michelle Roberts doesn't just hand out interviews. I just no, want to be clear. No, no, we we have learned this. Uh, we have definitely learned this. And so, like, no, we've got this. And now, I mean, this is going to be the craziest free agency season. That and it's so many guys that are available. The options one, like one of these dominoes goes tripped up, and then everything can get flipped For around. Sure. And yeah. then they're going back to look at the supermax. It's not funny to me to think about the supermax, where it's almost like if you can get a guy to stay and take your supermax contract, maybe you don't want him. <laughs> like that's become right, the right. ironic like right, hello. If, they, if they say yes too fast <laughs> yes. Like, wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute yeah look at you washington wizards as you prepare <laughs> to get bradley beal this supermax contract you might want to think twice about that one. it's a fascinating thing that they put in and um so check it out but is going to tell you all about it with his guests ESPN NBA analyst and the host of Brian Winhurst and the Hoop Collective. His name is Brian Winhurst. All right, Brian, we're talking about the Supermax deal, and I think people have a general idea of what it is, but can you just give me a quick explanation about what the Supermax deal is in the NBA? Yeah, so basically it's a de facto franchise tag. One of the things that we've seen in the NBA is when these star players have been changing teams, it's usually after their second contract or after their first max contract. LeBron did that. Chris Bosh did that. Um, Dwight Howard did that. Um, the, the guy who triggered it to make this all happen was uh, obviously Kevin Durant. He did that. And so basically what the Supermax is, is for those guys who have seven to ten years of experience, it flicks up their um, their their uh, paycheck to a ten-year experience player. So it basically works like this. If you're a, a guy who's got four years experience, you're getting your first max contract, you can get 25% of the salary cap. And right now the salary cap is about $100 million, so it's easy math, so it's about $25 million. 
Uh, if you're a seven-year uh, experience player, you can get 30% of the salary cap, so about $30 million to start oh, right now. And then if you're a 10-year player, you can get 35%. So um, it's a difference of about $5 million a year. Um, over the five years of the contract. So right off the bat, it's, you know, 25 million minimum. Uh, and then obviously it's going to go up from there with raises. So that's how you get, um, guys who, you know, who get the supermax can get tens and tens of millions more. So basically it's a way to super duper reward the players who have seven years at least of experience to try to get them to stay put because that's the time um, when these players were leaving. And it's, you know, it, 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 you know, if the owners had their druthers, they would have had a franchise tag just like in football that you could slap on a player and he couldn't leave in, in free agency unless there were extreme circumstances. The union said no to that. So their way to buy their way out of it was let's just give them so much money that they don't even think about leaving. But then the flip side is they still think about leaving, or at least it appears to be the case. Right. So it's only been partially successful. We have seen instances where it has worked. Russell Westbrook, uh, James Harden, uh, Steph Curry, those guys did take the money. But obviously a lot of situations where it hasn't. Um, Kyrie Irving said, I don't care about it. Paul George said, I don't care about it. Um, and it's also gone, uh, Kawhi Leonard said, I don't care about it. Trade me. And it's also gone the other way. Um, the Sacramento Kings, as an example, were afraid that DeMarcus Cousins would only want the Supermax, didn't think that he could, uh, didn't think it was worth it. So they traded him. He didn't want to be traded, but they traded him. And it's important to point out that um, you don't get the Supermax if you're traded. So if you ask for a trade, um, you're basically voiding the chance at getting those tens of millions extra. And that is exactly what, as an example, Kawhi Leonard did last year and what Anthony Davis is prepared to do when he asked for a trade away from the Pelicans. Well, how do the owners feel about this? Because they want to keep these guys and they figured, hey, we give them the money, they'll stay, except we've seen these high-profile cases where they have it. Well, I guess it's never going to be a foolproof situation, but this has backfired in a way that the owners didn't expect it. And the, the, uh, the, in addition to giving the players the extra money, the Supermax, one of the things that they did to the rule was they enabled players to extend their contract in the middle of their deal. So this, this is exactly what happened with Russell Westbrook and James Harden, uh, and John Walls, another example of this. All those guys had multiple years left on their contract, but when they became eligible for the Supermax, the teams rushed in and offered them extensions, even though they had you know they were they were in the middle of their deals, uh, and they all took them. Those guys took them. Um, the problem is is that um, because these extension deadlines started happening before they were free agents. You know, for example, let's just say um, let's use um, you know Anthony Davis as a perfect example of this. Anthony Davis isn't a free agent in until 2020. Um, but because he's extension eligible for the Supermax in 2019, all of a sudden the pressure on whether he was committing to the franchise got advanced by a year. And the reason the owners put that in was to say, not only are we going to give these guys a whole bunch of money, but we're going to make sure they don't even get to free agency and even can be, can be wooed by building a super team or whatever. So we're going to put the, we're going to put this big pile of money on the table and we're going to put the big pile of the money on the table one or two years in advance so that there's no pressure that we're fine. 
and um, it's backfired because what's happened is instead of the players waiting to become free agents, when the extension moment happens, they've been able to basically give their referendum on the franchise. And so instead of not worrying about Anthony Davis until you know 2020 or at least into the 1920 season, they had to worry about Anthony Davis a year and a half before his free agency. And we're, we're going to see this happen again. Um, Giannis Tenacumpo has two years left on his contract um, uh, next summer. He'll have two years left. Uh, but he's going to have this deadline rushing at him about signing the extension. Uh, Damian Lillard this summer, he has two years left on his contract. But if he doesn't sign that extension, the sweat beads are going to start popping out. So in some ways, it's rushed free agency at the teams. And even Adam Silver has admitted that this is an unintended consequence of this rule that they thought was going to keep free agents in place. Well, it also seems interesting that they thought that this would be the way to go, because I think if there was any lesson to learn from from the summer of 2010 with LeBron and those guys is no, these guys will walk away from money. Yeah, I think, I think there's a couple lessons on it. I mean, one is that the money has gotten so high now. Uh, and I think Paul George has articulated this when he walked away um, from money with the Pacers, that the money has gotten so high now that it's not like if you, if you walk away and go where you want to go, you're going to be broke. Um, you know, players are still signing, uh, max players with seven years experience, uh, this summer, uh, could walk away from their teams. Let me give you an example. Kemba Walker, for example, he could walk away from the Hornets and go sign with the Lakers and still get almost $150 million. So saying that he is making a terrible financial decision when he could be guaranteeing himself that doesn't have the same teeth. But Bomani, there's also been a secondary fall off. And I'll go all the way back to 1999, um, when they had the lockout that cost half of that season and led to the establishment of the max contract. At the time, David Falk, who was Michael uh, Jordan's agent, um, he was very opposed to the max contract. And what he said was, if you say that each team has a maximum player contract, you're going to have 30, or I think it was 28 teams at that time. You're going to have 30, you're going to have 28 teams with 28 players who think that they're max players. Every single, uh, player is going to, th- you know, the best player in every team is going to think that he's worth the max. And to a certain extent, I think David Falk proved to be right. Because you had situations out there like uh, Andre Kirilenko with Utah. Andre Kirilenko was a, was a fine player, a quality player. Um, but for Utah, they had to give him a max contract because he wanted it. And they was like, well, he's our best player. We have to give him the max. So this is what's happened with the super max now, too. Um, if you get a player who's really good, who's your franchise player, and he hits the super max qualification, um, you feel an immense pressure to give him that money. If Kemba Walker gets on the All-NBA team, and, you know, he is definitely would have earned it, he is now in position to ask the Hornets for for a five year two hundred twenty million dollar contract, and I like Kemba Walker. I think he's incredible to watch. Um, at the uh, you know at the end of games, he he has moments where he is you know goes white hot with talent. He's a guy you want to have on your roster. Your fans love him. He's never been a part of a, a, a of a of a winning playoff series, and yet he may earn his way to the point of asking for two hundred and twenty million. And again. LeBron James, Steph Curry, Kevin Durant, those guys, you're like, I want to give him that 220. Kemba Walker, I don't think it's in the same league, but because there's a max contract to find, in other words, the Golden State Warriors can't say, 
you know, Kevin Durant, you are worth $50 million to us. Uh, whereas the Hornets would say, you know, you're not worth $50 million to us, Kemba. You may be worth 30, but you're not worth 50. But because there's a standardized max, a whole bunch of players get grouped into that. And that was what David Falk, amongst other people, was saying was a flaw with a max contract. And, you know, you know, you can make the argument though, Bomani, that if there wasn't a max contract, owners and teams would make similar mistakes overpaying the, their best player. But because it's a standardized level, you sort of have in, you know, inequality amongst that level. But it's also kind of an irony that the players, one could argue, most worthy of those supermax extensions are the ones who have enough money that they're willing to walk away, which means that the guys who you maybe don't want to give it to, they snap that thing up so fast. It's crazy. Exactly. And I really do think, though, in all honesty, from an economic standpoint, there's probably only a few players that, you know, that their accountants would be okay with them saying no to a supermax. You know, LeBron uh, James has, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in endorsements. Kevin Durant, hundreds of millions of dollars in endorsements. Steph Curry is around that level. Um, you know, Paul George or Kawhi Leonard, um, opting out of the Supermax and potentially costing themselves $70 million. Um, I'm not so sure that from a balance sheet standpoint that they're ever going to make that money up. But those guys obviously felt that um, having freedom and having flexibility had value to them. And, you know, it is obviously easier to say, to say no to that when you, when you, when you're still, you know, pretty indemnified against everything. But, um, you know, I'm not saying, you know, Paul George someday will feel the loss of that money, but, um, the intangibles, I, he is, uh, he has made it clear that have outweighed the, uh, the loss of that cash. I also think that there's an argument that could be made that this could be a good thing for the league just because it should incentivize and force franchises to like create places that guys actually want to stay in. Yeah, I think you could make, you could make that argument amongst, amongst all teams and all leagues. Um, I, I, I do think one of the things, uh, you know, the Oklahoma City Thunder have constantly been a tip of the spear for the way the NBA has tried to control star players. So, you know, when the, when the Heat were formed in 2010, the NBA put in, put in a, a very much harsh luxury tax to try to break up super teams. And the first team that it affected was the Thunder, um, because they had to trade, uh, James Harden because they didn't think they could afford the luxury tax on Harden, Westbrook, and Durant. Now, obviously that trade has been analyzed ad nauseum. In the moment in 2011, that was the decision that they made. Um, you know, and then, uh, you know, they make the adjustment, you know, then Durant walks and then they make another adjustment, um, to try to basically hold superstars in place and, um, they immediately give the contract to Russell Westbrook where it works. So it's, just, you know, they kept Westbrook because of the fallout from Durant, just like they lost Harden because of the fallout, um, from the, from the heat being formed. So they've sort of been at the tip of the spear. And what I would say is you look at the Oklahoma City Thunder, they are in the bottom five markets in size. Uh, they have two, uh, superstar players on their team and they've been able to retain both of them. So yes, they lost Durant and they lost Harden, but they have Paul George. George and Russell Westbrook, and they're paying them. They're paying them a lot of money, and they're probably losing money as a franchise. In fact, I'm certain they're losing money as a franchise. But you could argue that they have been an incredible test case, um, and you know they've been able to maintain their stars now, and that that this this CBA that went into place enabled them to make that happen. Now, should we be surprised that they're losing money? 
No, I mean, the, the, generally the way the NBA operates, it's, it's a very socialistic system. Um, even though it's, uh, you know, maybe the pinnacle of capitalism, it's very socialistic. The, the, the five to seven teams that are heavily profitable really fund the seven to ten teams that really lose money. Um, you know, the Charlotte Hornets, for example, receive about $30 million a year from their partners. Um, the Memphis Grizzlies, about the same. Um, teams like the Lakers and the Warriors are paying um, in excess of $40 million a year into that pool. Um, and so, yeah, it would be nice if um, everybody pulled their own weight and everybody uh, was sustainable, but that's not the case. In a 30-team league, um, the richest teams are going to have to partially fund the smallest markets. And look, the, 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 the Los Angeles Lakers play the Utah Jazz four times a year, put those games on television and reap the rewards with their $175 million a year local TV contract. It's part of the deal. There's always going to be revenue equality if you want to have uh, a league that has any sort of you know diversity in terms of markets. Now, last thing for you, just looking forward to the summer. I don't know if it's possible to top what the summer of 2010 was for free agency, but this has got to be the biggest one since, right? Right. Well, so we have um, a whole bunch of stars out there. And not only do we have a whole bunch of stars, we have big slash glamour markets with space. So you obviously have both L.A. teams, both New York teams. Dallas is sitting there with space. And so you combine all of that. And you have a powder uh, keg. And not only that, I think, and I think this is an important fact. All of the top free agents have rings. Clay Thompson, who I don't think is going anywhere, but I think merits mention. Kevin Durant, Kawhi Leonard, Kyrie Irving. They, that gives them a freedom to do some things that otherwise in other years free agents who are chasing titles and respectability don't necessarily have. And so I think it makes it incredibly high stakes and also, Balmani, incredibly unpredictable. We'll see how this goes. That is Brian Winhurst. Check him out. NBA ESPN analyst. Also check out his podcast, Brian Winhurst and the Hoop Collective. I appreciate it, Matt. Thanks, Balmani. Bill Duffy, longtime NBA agent. This provision in the collective bargaining agreement, do you think it's something that has served players overall? I believe it has in the sense that it gives the players as much mobility as they've ever experienced. Um, when the CBA reduced maximum, the length of maximum contracts, the players have taken advantage of that by doing shorter deals. You see one-year deals, two-year deals to optimize flexibility for themselves. So, and obviously, you know, there's the three thresholds in years of service. So you can get to the highest threshold and kind of manipulate that. So for the high, high-end players, it absolutely has worked out. Obviously, there's a home field advantage because you can earn more from your original club that drafts you or the team that you're, you're signed up with. So um, it'd be hard to argue that this hasn't worked out for the elite players. Well, especially the guys that might be a step below elite, right? Because so many of the elite guys we see walking away from money to go to other places and others being like, oh, no, I'll take $40 million. Well, they have the ability to make that up because, you know, Kevin Durant, I know he's danced around and done three one-year deals, and he knows he's always going to be maxed out. He knows there will always be provisions in the marketplace for him by virtue of his, his profile and stature. So, you know, and the way I look at it, you know, you're, you're pretty much constricted fully to the first five years of your career. So it's only fair that you have that type of mobility from that point of your career on. And it's, it's worked out, as I said, quite well. Now, in your experience and knowledge of the game, has this changed tampering at all having this provision in place? Well, 
you know, the whole tampering thing is just, you can't police that. You know, I, I think a lot about just the fact that these guys are, are just mega brands. They're together. They do stuff in the summer, so they kind of congregate. And then also, you know, the agents, we, we represent multiple, multiple stars. So just by virtue of just communicating with the teams on a regular basis, you know who has interest in whom. So there's just so much information out there. But, you know, you see these guys, you know, during the summer, like, hey, we should get together when our contracts come up. So you, you can't change that. It's just such a small ecosystem that there's so much, you know, communication and interaction among each other. So, I, you know, that's going to continue. Now, strategically for you as an agent, does the Supermax being in place change your strategy at all as how you go about negotiating contracts? It does. It depends on the level of player. Um, you want to make sure that, you know, the team's going to be able to have, you know, support around that player. You know, if you have two Supermax guys and, the, and then the, the, you deplete the talent around the player, then the player may not be happy despite the fact that they're getting paid because at the end of the day, you know, everybody wants to win. So, to accomplish both of those, it, it does provide some type of ingenuity. But I do know that the first and foremost, a player wants to get his first paycheck, and once they get their first paycheck, then they're a little more flexible in terms of what they're looking for. I think you pointed something interesting too, which is that the money is certainly great, but losing makes them all miserable. Well, it's so funny, Bomani, because you know, and we have a couple, you know, high-profile free agents this summer, and. You know, we're obviously looking for their money, but I'm always reminding them, like, look, you know, be careful what you ask for. So, you know, you'll be happy on the 1st and the 15th, but you might be miserable otherwise. So the coach, the environment, the team, the culture, you have to always keep that into consideration in the long run, and especially if it's a second contract because if a player's not in a favorable situation, it may hinder their third contract. So I look at it as kind of a stepping stone where you want to make sure you keep progressing in every aspect, you know, each from contract to contract to contract. Now, this might sound crazy to some people because you're talking about guys making upwards of $40 million a year, but are the high-level guys in the NBA truly being paid what their value is to their franchise? No, no. To me, you could arguably pay Steph Curry and LeBron James $300 million each, and that would be fair. They And I live here in the Bay Area, and I watched what Steph Curry has done, you know, in this particular region and just globally – uh, because the type of person he is and the type of presence he has and the demographics that he reaches and LeBron just being just a superhero type. I mean, you can put Kevin Durant in that category. You know, I don't represent these guys, but I respect the value they bring to the whole global dynamic of what is represented in the NBA and all the revenue that's generated, all the programming, all the social media, you know, the expansion in various global markets. It's all attributable to the stars. It's a it's a box office business. And so you, you, you could say Michael Jordan – you could never pay him what his value was when he was playing, and he was underpaid his entire career. So I think your point you know, is well taken. You know, we talked to Brian Winhurst about this, and one point that he made was that having a max contract then meant for a lot of teams that you had to give your best player a max deal, whether or not he was worth it, because that then became the expectation. So with the Supermax, are, are we experiencing kind of a similar thing there where guys want that specifically because it exists? Absolutely. It's a representation of your profile. Um, that you're an elite, elite player. And typically those supermaxes come with bonuses from making one of the three all-NBA teams or an all-star team. So it could be upwards of another, you know, $40, $50 million in their compensation. So, yeah, no, the top guys, it's very important that they stamp themselves as a supermax elite player. Now, this summer, do you think that we as media are overstating just how crazy it could get with all these guys that are available this year? 
Uh, well, it's always chaotic, um, but you have four or five, you know, superstars that are free, and you also have mobility in the marketplace. Two or three years ago, there were some pretty good players available, but there was stagnation in the market because teams didn't have cap space. But, you know, the, the league unilaterally tends to ramp up certain time frames, and this is one of them where they want to enter to the marketplace, coinciding with these particular plays being free. So there's probably six or seven clubs that are going to be throwing out a bundle of money, and there's probably four players that, so it's kind of like musical chairs. So and it's just one of those times, and there should be a carryover. So you'll see better contracts even for middle-class players, and I think this is going to be a good summer. Now, one thing that changed in this league also is that the uh, Ricky Wade scale was put into effect. I guess it's now about over 20 years ago now that that was there. But the idea was that veterans would then get more money. In the NFL, they've done that, and the veterans haven't gotten the money. They just picked up more young guys. Has this helped veterans get their money in the NBA? Uh, it hasn't. And in, in this particular, in our last CBA, uh, rookie scale went up 45%. So they're still paying rookies aggressively. And for the, probably the first five or six players who come in immediately and have impact, they're probably paid fairly. But when you got, you know, probably 15 guys in the first round who are making a pretty large sum of money when they haven't really earned it, um, there could be an argument there. But um, my position has always been that the veterans should get the lion's share of the money. The rookies should pay their dues. And once they earn it, then they should have the fruits of their labor, and they will for a long period of time once they establish themselves. You know, the NBA right now is in like a period of labor peace. We had the lockout, you know, going into the 2011-2012 season, but now everybody seems to be like pretty happy with each other. What do you think about just the overall state of things right now with the NBA and just, you know, where labor stands? I think there's peace. I think it's because of both, you know, Adam Silver, who's just a dynamic leader, and Michelle Roberts, who's very engaged with the pulse of the players and Adam and Michelle's cooperative relationship. Um, I also think it's attributable to just the, the prosperity. You know, Bamani, I think basketball is slowly emerging as the most popular sport, uh, certainly in North America, in my opinion. And I, I don't know that we can ever rival soccer, but it's just globally with all the influx of international players and social media and young kids of, of who follow every other sport. I have five kids and my youngest kid all he watches is these highlight tapes of all these players and dunks and moves. And I mean, it's just rapid and it's just carried over. So, um, and I, and I go back to Steph Curry, like here's a guy who everybody loves. So everybody's enthused to watch him play older people, younger people, you know, people from all over the world. So just the, the game is watchable. It's creative. Um, it's high spirited and it's just, it's really a perfect time. And I hope it continues. Now, what do you think is different about the way that Adam Silver has handled labor issues versus the David Stern era? I wouldn't say David. Uh, David was magnificent. Obviously, he built a league from, you know, back in earlier eras where there were drug issues and there was racial issues with the audience and, you know, league support. I remember in college, as you probably recall, although you're probably younger than me, that we were watching the finals, you know, on late night TV at 1130 tape delayed. So the way the business has grown is, is attributable to you know, David Stern's vision, and Adam was with him at that time. Adam is just more the new way, whether it's inclusion of gambling or signage on jerseys or the whole globalization. And I had the good fortune of representing Yao Ming. And when the NBA realized what his potential was, they just stuck their roots deeply into China. And I know they're working on India. You know, things are materializing in Africa. So Adam's going to – his concept has always been to grow the pie. 
and Michelle understands that, and now the players have rights with some of the marketing, so there's just more of a partnership concept, so it's, it's really working out well. All right, that is Bill Duffy, NBA agent. My man, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Always, Bamani. Thank you. The head of the National Basketball Players Association. Her name is Michelle Roberts. Now, Michelle, we've talked a bit about what the Supermax contract is. Now, with the last CBA negotiations, how big of a thing was this in those negotiations to make sure to get the Supermax contract through for players? I don't like to talk about the internal CBA negotiations, but I can I can answer this question by saying it was not the most significant issue that we we were addressing during negotiations. Frankly, we wanted to do something, and I think ultimately we succeeded, for every class of player. So we, t- we talked about things we could do in terms of you know, comp for rookies, for vets, for you know, f- free agents, for the entire membership was under consideration. And we didn't exclude. I mean, some might say, well, why do you have to worry about the, the max guys, the max eligible guys? You know, they're members of my union, too. So we went up and down the, the, the bench, so to speak, um, and wanted to make sure that there was something in it for everybody. So was it was it something we would have struck on? I'm not going to say that. But it was important that we receive some some value, some comp value, some enhanced comp value for every category of players, including the max guys. Now, does the Players Association see just the general idea of a max contract as a compromise? Well, you know, let's start with the fact that we've got, you know, we've got, we got, we got a salary cap at, at all. It, of course, it's a compromise. Um, the, the, in a completely free enterprise system, there would be no such animal. We don't have that system. I walked into a system pretty much ready-made that obviously was not designed for a complete unfettered free market. So, yeah, it's a compromise, just as I suppose owners would say that a minimum contract is a, is a compromise. So, yeah. Can't can't call it what it ain't. And that's what it is. Now, how did this grow out of this? You know, the five year contracts at twenty five percent raises. How was what was the process for growing to this place? Well, I should just point out that I wasn't here when the when the, when the five twenty five contract was negotiated. So I may be a little bit skewered in my response. I think the genesis of that and this 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 new max deal was to further incentivize players to stay with the, I like to say, team that brought you. Um, the, 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 there is a, a, a body of thinking that suggests that the game is better served if players stay with a team for, if not most, if not all, most of his career. I don't necessarily buy into that, but I appreciate that there are some people that, that feel strongly about that. So the, the incent, the, the, there's much in the in the CBA that's designed to incentivize players to stay with a team, and that's that's one of them. Um, if, if if your team can make an offer with respect to comp that no other can, then obviously it, it makes you presumably think twice before you elect to go elsewhere. Um, that's principally the, the 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 basis for it. Whether or not it's it's worked. You know, I'll, I'll defer to others, but that that was why it was at least being considered. Well, one thing that's also happened now is we've gotten farther away from the big cap boom of 2016 is that now guys are becoming eligible for this larger contract with a salary cap that isn't quite jumping at the rate that it did earlier. Has any of this made you rethink the Players Association's position on cap smoothing when the CBA was first signed? No, I mean, this was all predicted. I mean, we had projections that told us that pretty much what has happened would happen. 
we knew that there would be uh, the spike, uh, the spikes, I suppose I should say, and pretty much when they would happen. We players are, are very smart. They together with their financial advisors and agents understood who would be inclined to or be, be in a position to to enjoy it, who wouldn't. Um, so all of this was again. No, there were no surprises. The league had its league had its projections about about what the cap would look like. We independently confirmed um, that they their their estimates were were accurate. Um, and we walked into this situation with eyes wide open. Um, and I would not. I was confident that the decision to reject the smoothing proposal was correct back when it was made, and I can I continue to believe that we made the right decision. Are you surprised by some of the responses that people had to smoothing? Because it seemed surprising to me, at least, that someone would expect a labor organization to just, you know, give money back basically to the owners. Yeah, you know, I, I, I will tell you that I was surprised because I was I was not not I mean I was fairly new to this process. Um, it was a no-brainer to me, um, and I was not at all surprised by the players' reaction to the proposal. You know, we, we though, put aside our hearts uh, and, and decided that we'd go ahead and have some people much smarter than us. Uh, we, we retained the services of two independent economists um, to see if there was something we were missing. There was not. And so, yeah, I was I was frankly surprised because I didn't know if people understood that if the money was not going to go into players' pockets, it, it wasn't going to be donated to charity. <laughs> it was going to be going into the owners' pockets. And so I was surprised, but I think now, in retrospect, I shouldn't have been surprised because, frankly, I, I, I'm, I'm frequently, uh, <laughs> I'm frequently by myself wondering what people think an appropriate division of revenue between players and owners. And, and I'm surprised that frequently people think that the owners should be the recipients of the greater largesse. I disagree. But, you know, there are those out there who don't. Yeah, like, was there a moment for you when you realized that in this world of labor, man, people really root for the boss? I, I didn't know that until I got until I got here. In my old world... Um, you, 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 there was a natural empathy for the underdog. Now, before you all start screaming at me, I don't consider my players underdogs. I know they are well compensated. Um, I know that athletes make a lot of money. Underscore this, there is a lot of money made in this sport, and it is generated by the players. I don't pretend that the owners don't have some value. They do. But what I cannot understand is what sometimes appears to be a natural affinity for the owners um, and a criticism of the players as somehow being greedy. I will say this, that sentiment, I think, is on the downstroke, but it's still out there. There's still people who think that players are overpaid and owners should be the, the recipients of all of the or most of the money. But the, under the theory that they take the risks, there are owners, prospective owners lining up around the corner that would be happy to take the risk off these owners' hands. So, you know, while I, I certainly appreciate the owners and their, their contribution to the game, that's not to say that we should sort of poo-poo what the players bring to the table. Well, how surprised do you think people would be if they saw some of the calculations that your union has on what the value of the average NBA player is to the bottom line? Well, you know, I was just reading a couple. Of, uh, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I think they would be surprised. Certainly, those who share the, who, have the, who are of the sentiment that players don't make a substantial contribution to the growth of the game. But I was reading something about what happened to ratings when LeBron moved from the East Coast to the West Coast. 
in terms of the bottom line. Again, there's not 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 to say that TV is losing money; these markets are losing money and are going broke because of it. But his impact alone on viewership, and viewership, of course, dictates the amount of money that one can one can generate in sponsorships, says a lot about the impact that the players have on generating income. So. You know, and again, I hate to always use LeBron, but most people know who he is, and so I will. Cleveland. I've gone to Cleveland games for the last four years, playoff games where you can barely walk down the street. Cleveland's pretty quiet right now. So the, our, our players do make a huge difference in terms of revenue generation. Uh, they can make or break a market by either joining the market or leaving the market, and the owners know that. Well, there's been a historical perception about the NBA Players Association that it has been run by rank-and-file players and the CBAs have been good to rank-and-file players, but the star players had been cut a little bit short on the high end of the money. With the Supermax and deals like that, for your union, was that something also considered about the contribution of that particular class of players? Yes, and as I said, I don't want to cast aspersions on prior negotiations, but certainly during the the most recent CBA negotiations, I was determined, and we were determined, to make sure that it was not simply going to be, well, let's take care of the you know, middle class, let's take care of the rooks, uh, or let's take care of the max guys. Every member of that union contributes to the value of this game, and we made a decision that we would make sure that every category of player was going to walk away from these negotiations, having been enhanced in terms of their compensation. So whatever the historic perception may have been about the union's allegiance to one class of players over the other, um, it is our view today and our our commitment today to all players, no matter where they, as I say, land on that bench. Um, they're all of value, they all add value, and they all should contribute to the, the any revenue that's generated by this game. Now, one thing about the Supermax contract is that eligibility to it is tied to a lot of awards that are voted on, that are voted on by people that work in my industry. How much of a concern was there from players about giving us that much power over their earning? To be honest, with you, no one was happy about that. I mean, and that's not to say the players don't appreciate that that your colleagues know our game and know the game well, and certainly are students of the game, study the game. Some might even say experts. Um, and so it's not the case that players thought there should be no role that the media, sports media, had in in in, in this evaluation evaluation process. But there were those who thought it was an, it was an over it was, it was a larger role that, that that should have been appropriate. It was the subject of negotiation. Obviously, we landed where we did. But you know, it's one of these things that you ultimately will not have complete unanimity surrounding. But at the end of the day, we thought we cut a, cut a fair deal. How do you feel now about the union's relationship with the NBAs? We've seen the relationship have its ups and downs, and at different points, be more antagonistic and be more cooperative. Where do you think it stands now? You know, um, it's, it's fine. I mean, my my own view is we can we should be able to, as grown people, agree to disagree, uh, but not walk around hostile towards each other. I I get along fairly well with with the commissioner. Um, I think he's an honest broker. He obviously has his constituency. I clearly have mine. Um, it's in our mutual best interest to keep this game growing and keep it moving and keep keep the ball bouncing. And we try very hard. I try very hard to make sure that happens. Um, yes, we've had some some big fights, but they've not resulted in either one of us saying I can't work with you. Um, so you know, th- 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 we sh- there should be enough, and I think most of the time there is enough that we have in common, i.e., growing this game, growing this pie. Uh, making, keeping our fans happy, keeping the game, the game's integrity intact. 
there's enough that we should be and do agree on that such that we should not find ourselves in, in separate corners all the time. Sometimes we sometimes we do, but we unless we decide we're going to get a divorce, my words, um, we're going to have to figure it out. And knock on wood, we do. All right, my last question for you. You've had this job now for almost five years. Is there one thing about coming into this strange world of sports that still surprises you about running a union in this sector? I think what does surprise me on occasion is, and I, I should I need to stop this because you know, I'm sounding like my grandmother. <laughs> uh, I when I tell people that these players are my bosses, everyone thinks I'm being tongue in cheek. I'm not. They are amazingly astute. They not only know obviously the game of basketball. If they didn't know that, they wouldn't be here. Um, but I keep finding myself surprised at how much they understand the business of basketball. I told myself before I got the job that I knew these guys were smart. I mean, you can't sort of get to this level just being able to bounce a ball. Um, So I kind of thought, well, they're going to be smart men and you need to be prepared for that. But I I will tell you, and I should stop being surprised by it. I have conversations, I have meetings with, I have phone calls with, text messaging back and forth with these guys pretty regularly. And they are as bright a bunch of men as I've ever had occasion to work with. I'm both proud and pleased. Just got to stop being surprised. Um, I think that would surprise a lot of people as well if they had a chance to spend as much time with these players as I do. They really are 360 degrees of, of brilliance, both on and off the court. All right. That is Michelle Roberts, the director of the NBA Players Association. Thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Take care. ESPN's NBA front office insider, also watching the front offices of the Brooklyn Nets. His name is Bobby Marks. Now, Bobby, we've been talking about the Supermax extension in the NBA. And for you working in the front office when they first brought this about, what were your thoughts on it? The rise in salaries that we're going to see here. Uh, Bomani, I think when you look at how players are paid in their contracts, you usually get three cracks of the apple, I say. You get the rookie scale contract. You get the rookie extension, and that third contract is usually the big one, and that's where some of these players like John Wall and you know, Steph Curry, players like that, are. You know, we're seeing thirty-five, thirty-six million dollars salaries, and how do you build out a team with a player like that on uh, on your roster here, and uh, and what the back end of the contract is going to look like? I think you know, players like Russell Westbrook will be. What, 31, 32 years old making north of $40 million. So I think it's, it's more about the, the, the high cost of, of what that, what that number is, is going to be. I, I, I understood the concept, but, um, I think there's some collateral damage with that also. It also feels like with Steph Curry, it's one thing because you have a team that's always winning and you're keeping it together. And then a guy like John Wall, he's almost like Joe Johnson was with his contracts with the Hawks where, okay, you guys aren't that good, but you're not good enough that you can afford to lose him. But you're also not good enough that keeping him is going to take you over the top. But now they're paying him forty million dollars a year. Well, and in, in the Wall case too, and I think you know we we can talk about how the system is as far as how, what the criteria is. And for for Wall, the year that he earned All NBA um, was the only year, <laughs> and that's when he met, and that's when he signed that 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 ex, that uh, um, that extension in the summer of of two thousand seventeen. He was coming off two thousand sixteen seventeen, where he all he he earned All NBA. Um, he was extension eligible because he met that criteria. Um, and that, you know, that was the only, that's the lone year here where maybe a player like, uh, Damian Lillard, for example, will, will earn NBA two out of the three years and now becomes, um, extension eligible this, this summer here. So 
I, I think if, if anything, you can go back and when they negotiated the CBA, if, if you can maybe try to tweak the criteria to make it that, uh, if it's two years in a row or two out of three years for MVP, it's uh, one out of three years here. I think that's something that, that teams would probably take a, a harder look at here, but I, I don't think they, I don't think they realize the, um, the mitigated, um, consequences here as far as, um, especially if, if you're a front office and you have not done a good job of putting your roster together. And I think that's the case in Washington where there's not an insurance policy when a player like John Wall gets hurt and you're stuck with that 40 to $42 million cap hit. You have not drafted well. Um, you have a player like Bradley Beal who, you know, is making $25, $30 million here that you're basically stuck with that contract and there's, you're kind of stuck in that in-between period. Now, could they have afforded to tell John Wall no on that contract? They could have, and I think that comes down to having pretty strong principles within that front office. Do you have a belief to let John Wall go through the year and then then go circle back with him the following year? The interesting thing he wouldn't have been he wouldn't have been super max eligible. He would have left um, a lot of money on the on the plate. And does John Wall all of a sudden turn around and ask to be traded? So I think it's kind of um, you know what your relationship with that player is, what your relationship with the agent is. Um, do you have a belief that you can afford going into a year when he can possibly walk um, and basically call his call his bluff here? So yeah, I think. I, I think there's a lot of different ways that they could have gone about doing it. Um, you know, I always call it the blank check r- route. They went. They basically wrote him a blank check, and, and they said, "Pick, pick your, pick the number, pick the years here." And, and John picked the highest amount. Now, as somebody who is in the front office, you talk about like trying to build out around that team. How hard is it now to build around a team with a supermax contract? Because I feel like one thing that happened with the Warriors with them being able to get all those guys in is it then forced everybody else to try to keep up without having the tools of the salary cap to do so. Well, I, I think you're you're seeing it in, in Oklahoma City. I mean the 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 Westbrook contract where Russell is, and then you add another player like like Paul George's. You, you've you've got to hit it in the draft. You've, you've got to draft right. Usually when you have a player making $38 million, or in the case of Russ this year, $35 million, that is, you are, you are in the luxury tax. So you are restricted. So the, the players that you go out and sign with your tax mid-level, the, the Patrick Pattersons of the world, those guys got to come in and, and produce. Um, the f- first round draft picks, um, the Terrence Ferguson's, what they do this year, uh, in the draft, the, I call it, um, bargain shopping and free agency, the minimum players. You've got to hit on that because if you don't, then that, that leaves you, um, leaves you exposed. I think, um, Portland will be a fascinating situation because of, you know, we know Dame Lillard will be, um, supermax eligible this summer. Um, and can, you know, in that contract, I'm certainly will be there, but it goes back to as far as drafting well, signing guys to minimum contracts here, um, signing guys to the, that, that, to the tax mid level. And, I, and that's the belief of having a, you know, good, good, strong foundation in that, in that front office. Now, how do you think the Warriors look at all this right now? Because they've got Clay Thompson up this year. And then what I think will be the most fascinating decision to make on a player in a long time, which is what they do with Draymond Green coming into one year left on his deal. Well, Draymond will be fascinating because he is super max eligible if he earns all NBA. Uh, I don't think he will because that forward position is pretty deep here. Um, or defensive player of the year. And I don't think he'll get that, but he's basically walking into a year, uh, you know, a contract year, um, and a, an expiring contract. And I think what happens with, uh, Durant, what happens with Clay, you know, certainly the likelihood is that Clay stays will impact with, um, 
with with what happens with Draymond and and usually the one benefit of the Supermax is, is that once a player is eligible or hits the criteria, you have an idea of where you're going here. Either that player is going to sign that number, um, like we saw with uh, John Wall and James Harden and, and Westbrook, or they're going to turn down that number. Kawhi Leonard, Anthony Davis, and that basically forces the hand of that team here. That's not the case with Golden State with with Draymond because he won't meet that criteria, and you're basically treating it as a player on an expiring contract as far as um, is he part of the future or do you kind of look to see what the market's going to be for him. And the overall tricky thing I think they have also is how many players can you have that the owner likes more than the coach? Well, I think the one thing that the, the one benefit they have is, is that they're going to the, into a brand new arena and the cost of what that payroll could be. I think we're looking probably over 300 million if that whole group comes back with tax and, um, and, uh, and sa- salary will be offset as far as basically that revenue. But, but my, what I learned was in, in New Jersey, the one year we had our, our, our luxury tax, I think it was uh, 92 million in luxury tax, 100 million in payroll, which is I think still the highest. Is that although you might have a billionaire owner and a lot a guy who makes a lot of money, that it's an uncomfortable feeling the first week of August when you have to wire the NBA 90 million dollars. Oh, you have to do that <laughs> once. You have to do it. As I said, there, it, this is not a. Um, you're not paying for college. <laughs> you're not paying on the first and or the fifteenth of the month here. You are paying it once. They give you that wire instructions, and it's not a. It's not a good feeling there. I, I don't care how much money they um, that your money you, you make. Whose job is it to go tell Progorov that we got to do this? In mine, I would get the notice, and then I would I'd, I'd walk into Billy King's office and, and say, here here you go. Here's, here's the date when it's due by. <laughs> and the crazy part was, too, is that, I mean, going back to that year, is that we had an opportunity to uh, trade for Jordan Hill, who was playing for the Lakers at that time, and it would have cost us like another $20 million in, uh, for three months. And, uh, and our ownership group was like, yeah, go ahead, go out and get him if you want. And we're like, God almighty, how many, how many more guys do we need here? Like we already had, like we already were like 14 deep and we couldn't find playing time for Kirilenko and, and, uh, and Andre Blotch and that, and that group here. But yeah, it, and I think that's why you're seeing teams, um, you know, with Houston duck onto that luxury tax because Teams don't want to pay if it's a million dollars or if it's $30 million. Now, switch gears just a little bit. I want to ask you about Giannis because he's due for the richest contract in NBA history, or he could sign that with Milwaukee next summer. And he seems like he really enjoys it in Milwaukee, but how hard would it then be for them to keep a team built around him? Well, the, the the fortunate thing is is that they Giannis is not uh, he'll be supermax eligible, but can't sign it until yeah summer two thousand twenty five years two fifty one. I think that's kind of where that number is is going to be um, right around there. They their key free agents are going to be this summer. So you've got Chris Middleton, you've got Malcolm Brogdon, you've got. Brooke Lopez, players like that. You already did the Bledsoe extension during the year. So, yeah, I mean, they'll be able to stay under the luxury tax this year, but that number is, that, that's coming. That's coming for them the summer of 2020 when Giannis is, uh, when Giannis is up. So they do get some breathing room right now going into next year, but it's another team that's got a new building, but it's also one of those mid-market teams. So can you pay a guy $45 million? And still have a highly competitive roster, and I think that's kind of where we're, we're, we're probably looking at it from from a uh, perspective of Milwaukee. They're basically they'll be pretty similar to where maybe Portland is. You know, Portland with Lillard, with McCullum. Um, you still have Nurkic, players like that, as far as you know, building that roster out. 
How big a deal is the tax for those smaller markets? It's a big deal. Uh, it's a big deal because you look at it, um, you don't get a tax distribution, so you're not getting money back. Teams this year get about $3 million uh, in tax distribution. It's it's a big deal because there's we see Oklahoma City in that repeater tax right now where it's it's four out of five years if you're in there. Basically, the cost gets doubled, so if... Um, if you are paying, uh, you know, $25 million in tax for the Thunder, maybe $50 million. So there's just a lot of, there's a lot of restrictions as far as how you build out the roster. I think not receiving that tax distribution is big for some of the smaller market teams. But on the other hand, there also is the revenue sharing. So it's maybe what you lose, you can get, you can get back here. But yeah, we, we never see teams like Charlotte. And that's another team. Charlotte's going to be fascinating this summer. You know, what do you, what happens if Kemba Walker earns all NBA? He's super max eligible. Can you pay him five years, $221 million and basically bring that same roster? Michael Jordan's never paid the luxury tax. You know, never has, you know, <laughs> the most Michael has Jordan never, thing ever has, has never done it. And will he do it? And if he, if he will, um, you're basically paying it for probably a, a what, a 40 win team at, at best just because the same pieces come back. How hard do you think it'll be down the line to trade some of these guys that have this contract? It's nearly, and I don't want to say impossible. I think any player is, tra- is tradable. I think the Walk contract is is untradable because of the Achilles injury. But you know, I, I wrote up Oklahoma City for when they get eliminated here, if it's um, if it's against Portland in Game Five, and that's one of the questions I asked about Russell Westbrook. You know, here's a player that's owed four years, 170 million dollars. I understand he's the face of the franchise. I understand he's never entered free agency since he was drafted in 2008. He was the big part of why Paul George committed. He's an all-star here. But you know what happens if, if the Thunder all of a sudden say, you know what, we need to overhaul the roster here. Russell is the guy that we're going to look for, for um, from a trade standpoint. Can you get equal value back? And I'm, I'm not certain you can, um, you know, but there's, you know, can you get draft picks back? You, pro- you certainly can based on where this, where this year is shaking up to be. Maybe a team like Phoenix possibly, but, um, those are big numbers, you know, especially when you have to match salaries in most cases, unless you're taking back, uh, unless that player goes into cap space. So, um, a guy making $40 million in, on a roster, um, I think, I think it, that scares off teams. Let me ask you this. As an uninvested observer, how excited are you for the start of free agency this summer? I'm one of those guys when, um, I guess when the commissioner talks about it or when, or Kevin Durant talks about it where we kind of thrive on the chaos of, uh, uncertainty. I love the chaos of uncertainty. And I think I, why I'm looking forward to, um, this summer is because there's, there's going to be a big drop off in, I think in the, in the summer of 2020. I think where we're looking at, with this year, with the impact, uh, what the value of Zion Williamson is, and then Kevin Durant, Clay Thompson, Kemba Walker, Jimmy Butler, Kawhi Leonard, both New York and, and, and um, L.A. teams having cap space. That's a great storyline. But then you look at Draymond and a lot of restricted guys like Ben Simmons who can get extensions this summer and guys like DeMar DeRozan. Um, so there is a little bit of a drop off. And I think what teams do this summer will, will certainly set up for, you know, you know, where they are in, in the future here. Yeah. I think the point about both LA and New York teams is interesting because this is the first time I feel like in our collective lifetimes that the fact that the Nets and the Clippers have space, it means something different now than it ever has. Well, and it and it's funny too is that you would probably if you ranked where those four organizations are as far as a desirable place right now, 
um, based on the infrastructure in LA uh, with the Clippers, the management, um, coaching in Brooklyn, you'd probably rank those those teams ahead of the Lakers and the Knicks. And we probably couldn't say that what you know six or seven years ago in the maybe in the summer of 2010 when we saw the big you know all those free agents out there um, out there again. So um, yeah, that's the fascinating thing is that the little brother in those two places are now kind of in the, in the pecking order. Last thing for you. Do you have a Kevin Durant guess? Are you willing to try to guess what in the world goes through Kevin Durant's mind? I can't read Kevin Durant. (laughs) (laughs) Probably as much as I can't read Kawhi Leonard as far as there. Um, I think New York is the ultimate challenge here. This is not Golden State. This is not even LeBron going to the Lakers where you had Kuzma and Ingram and in Lonzo Ball there and cap space to, you know, to add another piece here. You were going into a New York team that basically has an expansion roster here and and maybe that changes if there's somebody else coming with him all right that is bobby marks espn front office insider for the nba thanks so much my man i appreciate it thank you thanks for listening to the first iteration of our baseline series on the right time who collective listeners we hope that you enjoyed it download the right time subscribe wherever you get your podcast rate us review us give us five stars you only give us four stars i'm inclined to believe you're a hater and we'll talk to you in a couple of days take it easy 